Welcome to On Resistance Radio. On Resistance Radio is a horizontal media collective dedicated to empower resistance against all forms, structures, and systems of oppression. Today's dialogue, we will be diving into a plethora of things um, around humanity. With that said, in today's society marked by struggle, there seems to be a lack of untainted humane dialogue. With economic struggle, family and human relationship struggle, health and social struggle, and the persistent structural violence of American society, humane dialogue can be lost in the confines of our hearts and minds, blocked because of the many violences that we experience throughout our society and throughout the world. Because the environment affects all living things and beings inside of it, it can be hard to have a dialogue that comes from a heart that is not bruised by the violent American society. Many of us feel that we need to put our hearts on the back burner to be able to protect ourselves. So we only use our minds and social intellect to combat violence of this inhumane society around us. I mean, they are being inhumane, so why should we not be? Uh, With this question on the heart and mind of me and my two homies who are here with me, we will have a conversation on what is humanism. Most importantly, what is the human being's radical responsibility to help shift our society back to a place or maybe shift our society for the first time to a world where all living beings and things are respected because of their inherent dignity? What is human revolution? Homies, please introduce yourselves, and for an icebreaker, what are your opinions on Empire, the television show? (laughs) I'm going first, since I said I love icebreakers. (laughs) Hey, Esha, thank you. I'm Keisha Baines, and originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, by way of a couple of countries and a few other states, (laughs) and finally settled here in L.A. Empire. I thank Empire for employing so many black actors, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for pulling so many of us out of the woodwork, some people that we forgot about, Mm -hmm. we didn't know were still doing stuff. Mm A couple folks, I was like, they living? Get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think it definitely has created a space for dialogue around the need and the, the room for more creativity, that there's, there's enough room for everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just have to be one show or one actor or actress or one group or one idea. There's room and space for everyone to get in and do something. So if you don't like it, step up to it and and Mm -hmm. match it. Bring something else to the table. But I love it. I think we need to have more, more of that. Most definitely. I am Ralph Craig. The third. But it be like Ralph. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am from New Orleans, Louisiana, and similar to Keisha via a number of countries and other cities, here I am today. And my feeling on Empire, the show, I have yet to see the show. I've only seen previews and read commentaries on the show and people's opinions. My own opinion, um, as Keisha and I were talking about before the start of this. Where do you think I got the icebreaker from? Um, <laughs> as Thought Keisha you and was I, original. <laughs> as Keisha and I were thinking, or were talking about this, a friend of mine brought up a very different perspective on the show. One friend of mine, uh, also black, uh, African-American man, he was saying that he felt the show was exploitative um, and... Uh, 
kind of maybe took black culture backwards. Interesting. Uh, my friend, uh, a young woman, uh, also African-American, her perspective, and she is a writer, she writes for television, film, and whatnot, her feeling was that that criticism, people don't say that about other shows like Seinfeld, mm-hmm. any given Wes Anderson movie, mm-hmm. anything like that. People, But then when a black show comes on, people are so quick to say that's a caricature or that's exploitative, et cetera. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel similarly, though I haven't seen the show, my initial reaction to previews was, Oh, goodness. Here, here we go again. You know, Tyler Perry's finest back at work. But then I thought to myself, um, would I feel that way? You know, I love Wes Anderson films. I've never seen Seinfeld, but I love a lot of shows like that. Okay. And so would I feel that way if it wasn't black people? Do I feel that way when it's someone else, when it's another mm-hmm. race of people? Um, and the answer is no, I don't feel that way. Even though knowing, I go into a Wes Anderson film knowing it's a caricature, knowing that's its purpose, knowing it makes light of certain cultural things. And I think it's time for black culture, black films, black television, black everything to be appreciated in all of its aspects. And yes, it's, yes, yes. it's messiness, it's joy, you know, from Langston Hughes, from the, the highest of the intellect, mm-hmm. to... The jokes on the street corner, I think, you know, black, not just black culture, people of color don't get a chance for their cultures to be truly appreciated yes. for all of its aspects. Whereas mm-hmm. when it comes to certain uh, white shows, quote unquote white shows, you know, if they say something base or they cut up, if you will, act a fool, it's like, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> but when it happens when people of color in a show they do it, it's like, oh, so that's just the way they carry on, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's my feeling on Empire. And I can't wait to to actually see the show and put all of those views into the perspective of experience. Uh, yeah, uh, at Shofuni, I realized I didn't necessarily introduce myself. Because we uh, know you. <laughs> I like that someone is finally taking up homosexuality in the black hip-hop community. Um, I want to see where they're going to go with that. I want them, because they're kind of still just touching the surface a bit and just kind of, but that's something that within our own communities we don't deal with. Mm -hmm. And that's what's causing, you know, the rampant HIV and AIDS to go through the community and all this other stuff that people have to pretend like they're not who they are. Mm -hmm. That they have to hide who they are. They have to pretend to be this street cat or whatever right, right. to keep up this this facade of what hip hop is and that's not even what it was. Mm-hmm. Like, and what it comes like, from. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I wanna see where they go with it. I wanna see how many other touchy subjects they're going to touch with our people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I wanna see what they do with that. Mm-hmm. Going in say one more Oh please say one more thing. And let's because I was thinking about you know what what we're saying about these kinds of dialogues and these things have to be done. And, you know, really coming from ultimately people being allowed to know themselves, right? Mm. People being allowed to know themselves and Mm self-actualize, to be Mm -hmm. who they are. Um, I totally forgot where I was going, so I'm going to let that go. No, that's fine. That's dope. Oh, it'll come back. It actually is a great great leeway um, talking about knowing who you are Mm -hmm. and 
you mentioned like causes and conditions of our society mm. and that really brings us to our dialogue on our talk today humanism mm. and what is it and how can we actually get back to it i feel like the greatest society talks about we have it having to be humane and mm-hmm. but we never talk about what that is and like how to actually be humane and what do we in american society or what does american society white culture actually defined as human humanity or humanism so with that said uh um, how do you both understand uh, humanism um, or humanity? Hmm. For some reason, the word humane does not sound very compassionate. Mm. <laughs> when I hear humane, I don't, okay. it sounds very hard. It okay. sounds very cold and abstract. Sounds like that's hard. the... Like it sounds removed from the actual people mm-hmm. that it's probably supposed to refer to. Okay. <laughs> if you go to the point of saying, you know, you have to be more humane to them. Like that's kind of what it sounds like. Like it's politically correct to say that, but that's not, but you don't really feel that. And when I think of humanism or humanity or people that like the word compassion comes up, mm-hmm. that that like the connection of like those hearts and understanding that it's not just, oh, somebody's in this situation, but that any of us could be in that situation. Mm-hmm. That there's nothing that I've seen happen where it's like, oh, that could never be me. Like, mm. well, it kind of could. Yeah. <laughs> At any given time with, you know, with whatever that disaster was that happened on the other side of the world, something could happen here right mm-hmm. now and we mm-hmm. could all be there. That... Um, when I looked at the the plane crash that just happened in Germany, it's like, I just got off a plane last week. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that I even made it back, that I landed safely both mm-hmm. times, like, at any moment, that could be me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when I think of humanism, it's like, do I have the ability, no matter how frustrated I may be with the, the human in front of me, right. <laughs> do I have the ability and can I drop my own pride and my own ego mm. enough to be able to at least try to understand where they are mm-hmm. that is hard because <laughs> also inside of dropping that you also have to be able to drop like you know your uh your your pains and yeah. your um your your experience sometimes you know because yeah. sometimes our society around us makes us box ourselves out and makes us yeah. not be able to connect to the human in front of us or the human uh, millions of miles away from us because we are dealing with so much struggle. Yeah. So I was like, can I, can we actually bring that guard down to be able to relate, um, Ralph? And I think the Buddhist perspective partially would be not even to drop mm-hmm. that ego or baggage, but to expand the space so that it can hold someone else's ego or baggage too. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Keisha was just saying you know, I was thinking, I think about this a lot, too, because in 2000, December 2004, right, the tsunami happened in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it on the news and I was watching it on TV. And, you know, kudos to a lot of um, those government officials over there. They really dealt with it. And the world community banded together, sent aid. At my school, we had a, you know, canned goods collection. You know, even a can of sardines can help. Right. And I thought, I'm so glad to live in a world, in a place where that hasn't happened, and in a world where people band together when that happens. But then fast forward to August 2005, when Hurricane Katrina happened. Mm -hmm. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. And 
so not only was I thinking that, you know, that that could never be me mm. in 2000, that tsunami situation, not only did that become me, but I got to see the very opposite situation mm-hmm. happen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where there was nothing commendable about the way that, that Hurricane Katrina and then Hurricane Rita, there was nothing commendable about the way that went down. The only thing about that that was commendable is that there were people all across the country who saw how non-commendable non-commend- the government's response was. The and lack of banding together. The lack of banding together. But there were people who took lots of people all across the country. People did it for me. People did it for my family members mm-hmm. and more who took people in, mm-hmm. you know, from New Orleans school systems, who took children in, who, you know, was may have been difficult because the way things are done in New Orleans, the way people behave is very different. Mm-hmm. So to have to bring in 10 kids from inner city New Orleans, mm-hmm. you know, or the lower ninth ward in New Orleans into a boarding school across the country where the rules and the culture is very different, mm-hmm. that's a huge thing that mm-hmm. is not without its problems. Mm-hmm. So the uh, you know when we look at things and we think that can never be me or that would never be me life is so mystic mm-hmm. life is so strange you don't you don't know what your destiny is mm-hmm. you don't know what your karma is mm-hmm. until you're living it mm-hmm. so to look at you know we would it would behoove us as Keisha was saying to and this is what buddhism says it would behoove you to develop compassion and the ability to expand yourself mm. and get really good at imagining yourself in different situations because mm-hmm. you don't know the road ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of takes me back to what I was thinking of earlier okay. when I mentioned uh, that show African American Lives. And something interesting that came up in the show was they were talking about, they were tra- tra- tracing these different figures' lives back and obviously you very quickly hit slavery mm-hmm. and the times immediately after slavery. Right. And uh, Henry Louis Gates said, was talking about when people became free. Suddenly the war happens and then one day, imagine someone taps you on your shoulders after generations of slavery. Someone taps you on your shoulders and says, you're free, my brother, my sister, go. <laughs> and Tina Turner said, well, some of those people may have been afraid. And it was like, wow, that's a perspective not usually talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, immediately after slavery. Slavery. It's not easy to just somebody say, now you're free, now go make it. Mm -hmm. We've we've seen today's society, that which has its roots in that past Mm -hmm. and the danger, uh, not the danger, but the the difficulty of finding a way after you've had no way from the very beginning. And Tina said... Um, some of them may have been afraid and thinking to themselves, where will I go? What will I do? How will I go? How will I do? Uh-huh. Um, and so this is where, you know, sharecropping and, and the kind of exploitation that came out of that came from that. So the, that I thought of that because of, we were talking about self-actualization and the ability to imagine. In American culture today, the creative pursuits have been so pushed down. It's like, mm-hmm. go to school, be an engineer, like do something that's going to make you money. Right, right, right. As if money has saved this culture. In fact, it has done the very opposite. opposite. <laughs> and so I think so one, one so um, corollary of people not, of pushing the creative spirit down, if we've lost the ability to imagine, mm-hmm. to visualize, and to imagine what life was like 
so that we can know what it could be like again if we're not careful. Right. And then further to imagine what life can be like so we can go in that direction. Mm-hmm. With the pushing down of creative spirit, we're totally losing the ability. It's like all we see is the ground in front of our feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't know where we're going. We're just doing things. And we're seeing it with the climate change argument. People are arguing, well, why does it matter? Because I'll, because your green lawn is not all that matter. I wish people could see Keisha's face. <laughs> no. Right. So that that's what I wanted to say. No, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, really interesting that you uh, bring up uh, you bring up Buddhism a few different times, and oh. um, just to state for the viewers, like all three of us are, are um, Buddhist identifying individual, I'm specifically mm-hmm. Nichiren Buddhist. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I say this because uh, there is a we've talked before about the difference of like a Buddhist humanism and then humanism, mm-hmm. right? Um, because especially because the way in which the word was termed, um, coined, and who coined the word humanism and where humanism actually comes from. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if um, uh, you two can um, actually uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on the difference between um, Buddhist humanism and uh, humanism It's uh, humanism as we know it in American society. Get it, Ralph. So generally speaking, humanism refers to the general idea that that emphasizes the rational agency of human beings mm. uh, and generally aligned with a secularist viewpoint. Okay. And so within that vein, humanism tends to mean a kind of getting rid of any kind of supernatural viewpoints. Okay. Getting rid of any kind of like divine or outside influence. And it all comes down to the person's rational agency. Um, Can you get a little bit more specific? A person's ability to decide their own fate. Uh, what persons, I guess? Uh, any. What tech, from a general standpoint, any. Okay. But when you get into humanism and its history, mm-hmm. like coming mm-hmm. out of uh, Greco-Roman mm-hmm. rational thought, mm-hmm. um, it comes to really mean white male, the, the white male, the ability of white men to self-actualize, to Teach. decide their own fate. <laughs> um, and the ability for white males to decide for other people, people who may not even be considered people, mm-hmm. the ability for a white man to decide his own fate and participate in the deciding of others' fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you trace that idea now down to today's world, when the word humanism gets thrown around, we have to look at what circles that word is coming up with, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. within and whose circles and who, what do they mean by agency? Okay. And mm-hmm. then, right, these are all relative terms. So if someone has agency, generally speaking, that means someone doesn't. That's mm-hmm. agency compared to a lack of agency. So mm-hmm. that's kind of in a nutshell what humanism Which. I wanted to be able to like lead into when it comes up to when it comes up to what we talk about on this show, just in general, like um, anti-black culture or like white supremacy itself. Usually, when that word, like you said, is around, mm-hmm. uh, which living beings or human beings self-preservation mm-hmm. is you know humanism actually talking about? Is that really an all-encompassing mm-hmm. like uh, humanism, or is that like a humanism that is directed towards um, the economic and social uh, elitist? Keisha? Thank you. I wanted 
Ralph to go first because I love, I think people definitely forget the origins mm -hmm. of words and how important words mm -hmm. are and like semantics and where they come from and the meaning that they have now is not necessarily <laughs> the meaning that exactly. they started off with or what it's come to mean now mm -hmm. that it didn't like the meaning didn't change we just use it differently now so it have we have this different feeling mm -hmm. about it so what i wanted you to take people back to like okay this is where it started yeah. this is who started it this is where it came from mm -hmm. and then this is what it kind of is yeah. now and from that like for me buddhism when i look at even when even when i hear humanism in buddhism i've been so conditioned for, to have it encompass all living beings. Mm -hmm. I've been conditioned to do that and it makes sense and the reason why it makes sense to me is because when I when you know President Ikeda, the president of Sokogakai International, um, which is the organization that um, supports Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism, when he talks about that every single person is a part of the universe but then within each of us even every itty bitty cell of us has that entire universe within it mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we are a part of the whole and the whole itself mm -hmm. as we are that we are this ball of energy or these spiritual beings having this human experience mm -hmm. and that's why i'm so comfortable with taking this humanism into meaning all beings because yeah. we've all chosen this human experience yes. as who we are and we're bringing that our energy our spirituality our selves mm -hmm. our souls to this yeah. and seeing what we can do as we interact as living beings mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. and how like like what that compassion means for all beings yes. as we all relate to each other as we're all interconnected as as we're, the Eshofuni of us, our environment is a reflection of our <laughs> life, that that's what that is to mm -hmm. me. That's what humanism equals to me when it comes to Buddhism. And I've, I feel completely confident in, in that understanding yes. of it. Differing humanisms <laughs> needs to be like actually discussed mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they like aren't discussed. And, and I think that um, for some people, they get a little uncomfortable with even the word like Buddhism being mm -hmm. put in front of anything, you know, yeah. especially because of our uh, background. When it comes up to Buddhist humanism, how do you see that that is actually misunderstood, just specifically the word like Buddhism and why people are afraid of it? Um, I can jump in there. Keisha, stay pointing to <laughs> Ralph to go first. Because he be so chivalrous all the time. Be, oh, you know ladies first. Oh, y'all don't That's see true. him with his top hat off. I don't see him. <laughs> but he do that. <laughs> do that. <laughs> to to get to dive into that question, I think uh, it's important to understand that Buddhism is there are many different forms of Buddhism, mm -hmm. and there are many different ways in which the message of the Buddha has been understood, translated, and even transformed. So that's the first misunderstanding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is, are we even talking about the same thing? That's misunderstanding one. Once you've established what you're talking about, then you have to deal with that other person's, you know, particularly if you are Buddhist, that other person's misunderstanding of what they think a Buddhist is or what a Buddhist should be. And then whatever associations they have with the term humanism. Mm. So now you put the two together and you say Buddhist humanism, now really what are we talking about, right? And the humanism expounded by 
president Daisaku Ikeda of the Soka Gakkai International Organization, right? The former of uh, the organization that supports Nichiren Buddhist, Buddhism that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. In their philosophy, in President Ikeda's philosophy of humanism and thus Buddhist humanism, we're talking about a form of human humanism that reflects the core spirit of the Lotus Sutra. Mm-hmm. based on faith in the inherent dignity of human beings and their capacity for positive transformation. And a defining feature of this philosophy of Buddhist humanism is that it includes an, a consciousness of and a respect for the interdependent nature of life. So it's a kind of humanism that doesn't put human beings above and beyond Mm-hmm. Other beings, right? The environment included, the sentient environment included. It includes an understanding of the environment, of the realm of the environment, as mm-hmm. we would say. So I think people get uncomfortable when the word Buddhism comes in because they think, oh, that's that religion stuff. Right, right, But right. most people in our culture's frame of reference for religious culture, stuff. I mean, America, mm-hmm. you know, most people in America's definition of religion is Christianity mm-hmm. and then going from there. So everything is judged on the standard of Christianity. If the word faith comes up, mm-hmm. their frame of reference is Christian faith. If the word God comes up, their frame of reference is the Judeo Christian Islamic God. Mm-hmm. All of these things become very important when you try and talk about the nature of the mm. Keisha? I think that when people hear Buddhism, that they think it's an automatic contradiction of what they believe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's scary. Like, oh, I'm Christian, so I can't, I can't even hear you on Buddhism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, oh, I don't believe in organized religion, so I can't even hear you on that Buddhism stuff. Or, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm an atheist, so I can't hear you on Buddhism. Whereas, like Ralph said, if, you, if we all understand what it is, Buddhism is all-encompassing, that it doesn't matter whether you believe or not, it's still, I think you brought up the inherent dignity of all beings. Mm-hmm. Like, whether you believe in Buddhism or not, do you believe in the inherent dignity of all beings? Mm-hmm. Do you believe that those beings can also transform for the better? Mm-hmm. Like, if you believe that, that is a Buddhist principle, and we can agree on that, and we can have this discussion and it not be a point of contention. Mm-hmm. And once we understand, like once people understand that that's what Buddhism is, and I think here, especially in America, and you know, with that Judeo-Christian background that we have, we're so used to that conflict of religion mm-hmm. that that that's what it has to be. Like you don't bring up religion, and you don't bring up politics at the table because mm-hmm. it's going to be a fight. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. Like mm-hmm. what happens if we just, if I can just say, oh, Buddhism. Buddhist humanism is this Mm -hmm. and the inherent dignity of beings. If I just say the inherent dignity of all living beings and I don't say Buddhism, like, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. how do you feel when I let you know that, hey, that's what we said. Thank you so much. Yes. (laughs) I think that once people sort of know what it is when they get when they understand that it's not. This is not something that's trying to divide you, that mm-hmm. it's here to unite, that we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to find these common grounds and these commonalities in this human experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that Buddhism is not saying you have to give up who you are in order to respect mm-hmm. this other person or this other idea or this other life. That I think once people get past that, that the, the openness for dialogue can begin. 
and we can start to really discuss on how how we as human beings are coexisting together and what we're doing together. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think the uh, scary thing when people hear Buddhism is be- they hear pacifism, and I think it it actually makes people. Um, it makes people uncomfortable, especially in a revolutionary uh, identifying circles where people are actively trying to shift the environment or the culture around them. So when they hear Buddhism, they think you're, you know, you have to be like you're like a pacifist. And <laughs> it's not really about like pacifism. It's actually, you know, the exact opposite. So which brings me to this question of why is Buddhism seen as a pacifist philosophy and um and how has it been used to actually pacify individuals who are trying to bring about social change first of all the buddha brought it like Mm -hmm. i know people might think this whole oh and he's so zen and he sat down and he didn't say anything like he went out and he started the revolution Mm -hmm. (laughs) he could have stayed in his little home and just been rich and kicked it for his whole life and been like, mm, that's what's going on out there. But he did not want to. Like, he went out and did what a revolutionary does. They go out and they find out what the problem is and how can I help these people? How can I, what can I do? Um, and even thinking about, you know, the school of Buddhism that we're all in, Nichiren and Daishonin's Buddhism, that these were not passive men. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to have this dialogue with me. Thank I, you. Uh, I appreciate it. Once again, this is On Resistance Radio. Um, you can follow us online. Um, our, um, our SoundCloud is soundcloud.com on dash resistance, where you will be able to hear this full uh, conversation um, because only a half hour of it will be actually aired. Please continue to work on your individual human revolution while taking action to shift our society back to a more life-respecting one. Peace. Like these men went to jail, they stepped up to authority, they spoke out, they did, they walked, they marched, they, they they did all of that. They did everything that a revolutionary did. So I think people, especially here, we're so used to someone else doing something for us, waiting for something to happen on our behalf, that the laid back type of attitude when it comes to prayer or Mm -hmm. action kind of comes up like, oh, okay, I prayed, so this will happen. And I think that's what happens with Buddhism, that the images that you see are, you know, people sitting in the mountains praying with their fingers together (laughs) or the dude with the round belly with a whole bunch of head praying and doing nothing. Like you, I haven't seen an image of a Buddha with like a crew behind him. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) what is it? Like, why is he always alone? Why is he a loner? But with the, I think it's time for people to understand that Buddhism is action. Mm-hmm. Like there is no there is no Buddhism without action. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just sit back and assume that oh, okay, something will take care of this or mm-hmm. it will happen something outside of me. And Buddhism is that it starts with you. Religion that that's what it is. And I think Ralph can sort of talk more on why the misconception of this whole laid back and chill kind of thing Passive is out there. Mm-hmm. Yes. I just wanted you to tap on you saying the word men. They self my friend gave me the 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 line of self identify as. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, 
I that when he talks to anyone, however they self-identify, that is how he refers to them. Mm-hmm. So whether they self-identify as gay or straight or whatever, or mm-hmm. some people don't like to use he and she, they like to use something else. And that the, the three people that I'm talking about self-identify as men. Therefore, mm-hmm. factually, they are men. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have yeah. any, and with as strong as I am, I that I cannot throw blanket statements over an entire gender or an entire race of people or an entire community or an entire I can't do that and especially with how pivotal the like, communities are right now and where the revolution can go and how amazing it can be and the radical change that mm-hmm. comes with that the radical responsibility that comes with it is we I can't be irresponsible with my word like the Nietzsche and Daishonin that sort of picked through the Lotus Sutra and found its core that is Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. I am grateful to that man for what he did because it is because of him <laughs> that we uh, we come to understand the heart of the Lotus Sutra mm-hmm. and that we all practice today in all these different countries in all of our different genders and languages and cultures and backgrounds and like I appreciate it and I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So so the issue becomes not organizations, becomes what those organizations are doing, how you're making use of them, what is your agency in relation to it. Yeah. So similar to when we talk about men, the Buddha was a, a man, like the historical Buddha was a man, just like the founder of uh, Nichiren Buddhism was a man named Nichiren, just like the founding presidents of the Soka Gakkai, which practices Nichiren Buddhism. Right, were men. That's not to say that there were only men present, but then going on to the three founding presidents of the Soka Gakkai, their wives were integral parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just as their wife. It wasn't that their only value was that they were the wife of these great men. Mm-hmm. They were great people in their own right, uh, and their stories are well known if someone is interested. Um, so I, I wanted to say that about the fact that we're when we when Keisha's saying men or when we say men, we're talking about just the the fact of the matter of why is Buddhism seen as a pacifist philosophy and how has it been used to actually pacify individuals? Um well the first thing I would like to say is that the true meaning of withdrawal. Because there's an image there's an idea, you know, that mm-hmm. Buddhism or meditative practice requires withdrawal from the world, you know. And in Buddhism, it's important to understand what, when you withdraw, you're not truly withdrawing because you take all of your conditioning, your baggage with you. Anybody who's ever been to a yoga class, Mm. meditation retreat, even 10-minute meditation session, eight deep breaths, knows that the world doesn't go away. It's in your mind. You still, if you've ever tried to lay down to go to sleep, but your day was still running through your head. Uh-huh. You take things with you. The mind can be thought of, and it is often the analogies used of modern times, like a video recorder, that uh-huh. every action of body, speech, and mind is recorded, right? And you take that with you. So withdraw- you're never truly withdrawing, A. B, the Buddha taught a revolution of body, speech, and mind. The Buddha taught a way in which a person could awaken to the fundamental, dig- the fundamental dignity of their life, begin to act 
that way in body, speech, and mind and help other people to do that. So then this brings us to pacifism. The Buddha taught nonviolence. The Buddha taught nonviolence because history and proof show that on the only thing violence has ever begotten is more violence. Maybe not in the moment, maybe not in a week, in a year, but eventually it mm-hmm. boomerangs around. And that's called karma. That's also called reality. <laughs> so Buddhist principles today, because of the work of certain, um, and this is not to put Alan Watts down. This is not to put D.T. Suzuki Roshi down and other such figures in uh, both the Zen community and the kind of Dharma bums culture and community. But that is kind of where this image this kind of removed image of just, oh, it's okay, just chill out, man. Let the world go crazy. You're uh-huh. cool inside of yourself. There is nothing in the Buddha's life story there. And we keep referencing the Buddha because I am of the opinion that the Buddha was one of the most radical figures to have ever walked this planet. And the Buddha taught radical revolution. And as a Buddhist practitioner, I have picked up that thread and practicing radical responsibility and revolution. So there is nothing in the Buddha's life story, not one single thing, that supports the notion that he was ever withdrawn from society. He be- he was a mendicant who begged for food. That right there requires other people. There has to be somebody who has the food for you to beg of it from. The Buddha was always in relation to other people. And a significant portion of the Buddha's post-enlightenment practice was dedicated to praying for and going out and taking action on the wealth for the welfare of other people. So this this way in which Buddhism has been co-opted to settle people down. There's a point in your day where it is very helpful, you know, in our practice twice a day, some people once a day doesn't matter, but to take time out of your day to tap into your innate wisdom and potential. So that when you take action, it is based on something that will create value. And you really think and contemplate and tap into something. But then you don't stop there. Then you go out and take action. Because whatever that wisdom and intuition tells you will be most effective to help the most people, then you go out and do that. That is Buddhism. That was the Buddha's life story. That is what I do. That is what I think many Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhists attempt to do. Question: I do have a question on you brought up like nonviolence. Mm-hmm. I want to go a little bit more into that, mm-hmm. um, just really quickly. Um, mm. The reason I want to bring it up is because structures and states use this term like nonviolence to also to pacify, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like and pushing people to not like taking action. You know, the, you've heard the phrase okay. "power does not concede without a demand," mm-hmm. and um, there's this. When we look at violence as being like harm from to one living to another, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about property destruction, mm-hmm. the many different direct action oriented things that go at structures. Mm-hmm. But if, we, if violence is defined one living hurting other living, mm-hmm. right? How has nonviolence been used to actually pacify um, resistance, Keisha? We have the responsibility to know 
what nonviolence is. Mm -hmm. And it does not mean lay down and take it. And I think yes. that's what's happened. That mm -hmm. is what, and when people, people love to compare, they love to do the Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like you're right. either Martin or you're Malcolm. Oh, Forget no. all about those black women that was there too. But Everybody on. else. Right. But I think they do that because like what, why both men ended up getting killed, why both men were such, were so terrifying to the government was because they were organizers. They were movers. Like, they could motivate people without social media or anything else. They could organize the revolution mm -hmm. and could direct it where it needed to go. And they both knew where it needed to go. Mm -hmm. They knew the exact structures to hit. <laughs> Mm -hmm. They know, oh, we need to get them in their pockets, is what mm -hmm. Martin said. Like, oh, you know what? We ain't mm -hmm. going to touch that bus. That's bad. And, and you're going to put it in the newspaper, and you know what? Nobody's going to get on the bus. That's mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It was still a nonviolent move. Mm -hmm. But it, he was able to hit them where it hurt in order for them to figure out, like, dag, we got the change. Shoot. Like, and that's what the attitude was. Malcolm, the same way. You know what? Y'all need to know the law better than they know it. You need to be able to spit it off like this. And you had... The entire Black and SNCC movement, the Black Panther movement, like that's what they did. It wasn't just, oh, okay, don't do anything or just be radical and to heck with everything and to heck with the law and all of that. No, like the organization and the education and the focus of the movements that brought us all here that we all sort of look back on and say, wow, that's how far we came. That's how much we did. There was so much more to it than the little the little specks that people are allowing us to remember. Yeah. It was so much greater than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also like, that's what um, Ralph was saying that, you know, the original Buddha was a rev like the most amazing revolutionary. Like, yes, we don't get to see all of that, but when you get to the meat of it, like the mm -hmm. heart of it, they did, he did so much. Everyone did so much. There's so much more. Mm -hmm. We're allowed to be nonviolent and not be passive. Mm -hmm. Like I'm allowed to, I don't have to punch you in the mouth every time I think about punching you in the mouth. If I did, I would have never met either one of you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if I could hit yeah. everybody I came across. Yeah. But as you mentioned, that doesn't solve anything. And with Buddhism and what I realize when I when I want to use my first mind and just holla off and punch somebody in the face for saying something stupid is I have to give myself permission to let go of that initial thought and go deeper. Mm -hmm. That I have to give myself leeway to say, you know what, I can approach him from the world of anger mm -hmm. or I could rise up to the world of humanity gosh, <laughs> and see if I can understand where this person is coming from or even be able to communicate in such a way that I'm not, that I'm not going to antagonize the situation even more. Or, that or I even antagonize even... myself specifically. For you? Oh, yes. Oh, mm. yes. Like, mm. I, could, I could make me angrier in something. Mm. But I think we have that there's, for whatever reason, nonviolence comes to mean you don't fight. And fighting does mm. not always mean pick up guns, get a knife, kick somebody, punch yes. somebody. Like, that's not just what fight means. Mm -hmm. That's Nonviolence doesn't mean, oh, we just lay back and wait for something to happen. That's not what that mm. means, that you can still fight. You can be a fighter. Yes. Now, like what like what this radio station is doing is fighting back against the systems and the stereotypes and all these things yes. that are put out there to people. And you're creating a platform for voices, for voices to be used in the arsenal yes. of weaponry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like that's what it is. Mm. When it, oh, when it comes to how that, how nonviolence 
and how um, these things have been used to pacify people. We were talking about mindfulness yesterday and how the mindfulness meditation movement has been co-opted by <laughs> companies to say... Big organizations. By major organizations, mm -hmm. from Google down to the corporation downtown, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have taken mindfulness, even have meditation rooms, that way, you can stay at your desk for 14, 15 hours. Mm -hmm. That you can overwork yourself. But if you're calmer, you know, because you, mindfulness meditation has certain benefits like bringing your blood pressure down and all these things. So, you know, calm yourself down enough to do the work we ask you to do for as long as we need you to do it. And nonviolence has been used, I think this is what Esho is alluding to, has been used by states and governments and systems to bring people down to say, you know, be nonviolent. But the problem there is that it's not a balanced action. Mm -hmm. Because just like those companies have co-opted mindfulness so that they don't have to change their business practices except to open up a room where you can go meditate. They can keep everything else the same, but you need to change and calm down so you can do what I've asked you to do. Mm -hmm. And nonviolence too often has meant, um, and I have great respect for the work of Dr. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and other such people, but a significant portion, you know, these were two great nonviolent figures. Um, a significant portion of their message is often lost, mm -hmm. where they were talking also about the change that needs to happen on the other side mm -hmm. as well. And so governments all too often, like Ferguson, you know, we've seen where the, the mayor of Ferguson and police department chief and others saying, so protesters just calm down. Well, no. <laughs> yes. Because something... And if you want to anger somebody, tell them to calm down. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what I wanted to say. I want to pass it to Keisha, but that was what I wanted to say about what Aisha was saying because it's very important that both sides of the equation become nonviolent. That's what the Buddha meant. Mm -hmm. That's what yes. Gandhi meant. That's what Martin Luther King meant. That's what... Um, Malcolm X meant. That's what Malcolm X That's what Malcolm X meant because, you know, sometimes these more radical, uh, you know, these so-called more radical individuals, they're seen as like the violent individuals like uh, like um, Malcolm mm -hmm. and uh, and many others. It's really important to like recognize that, you know, that's what they they were all talking about responsibility of the state, mm -hmm. responsibility of these structures, in these states mm -hmm. to actually perform nonviolence mm -hmm. because we live in a violent structure in society. Mm -hmm like Ferguson um, or Los Angeles for that matter, of like the many killings that like, just happen consistently through structural violence. What is meant about nonviolence from an Eastern standpoint, and I mentioned that because that viewpoint influenced a lot of the revolutionaries in America and in the West. Mm -hmm. Nonviolence was an inner state of mind where you do not seek to do violence to another person person you seek to right wrongs mm -hmm. you seek and so it's really based on compassion Nonviolence based on compassion means i will stand up and fight to the death and many of the revolutionaries we can name mm -hmm. fought to the death literally yes i will fight to the death for what is right and a an amazing woman an idol of mine if i could have met so Horner truth but that woman, that she, if you think about it, she said something very violent. She said, in, a, in her society, in her time, is a very violent statement. And ain't I a woman? Mm -hmm. That was her declaration. 
that you say women need to be treated like this, but nobody treats me like that. Yep. You said a mother needs to be helped, but I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. I've born I've bore many children, seen them all sold off to slavery, and ain't I a woman? Um, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, in his famous mountaintop speech, he said something very violent. He said, all we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. He was referring to the Constitution. And he said, I can understand if we lived in Russia or China <laughs> or Vietnam, those countries haven't committed themselves to the ideals that we put in the Constitution. But here we have committed ourselves to those ideals. Mm-hmm. And thus, it is wrong to not be living up to them. So... These kinds of revol- – the word pacifism gets thrown around when nonviolence comes around. But w- who's seen more violence than Sorhon or Truth, a mm-hmm. slave? Who's seen more violence than Rosa, Miss Rosa Parks? Who's seen more violence than Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King? Those two assassinated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as Keisha was saying, and I think as, as Aisha is saying, it, it cannot be underlined enough. That nonviolence does not mean lay down and take it. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing thing that Keisha just said. Nonviolence does not mean lay down and take it. Which probably can be considered violent in our time. With um with this like amazing dialogue, and I mean I feel like we can continue and go on, you know, and yeah. I do want to like bring us toward like a wrap up and um but before we get to that wrap up and we get like final like statements on these things, um I did want to one of the questions I posed at the, really, the very beginning is, what is human revolution? Mm. And I really wanted to save that really for the end because I feel that uh, human revolution is really important mm-hmm. um, to uh, bringing about a lasting change. Because mm-hmm. we have many different revolutions, the social, economic, mm-hmm. you know, from feudalism to capitalism. But I feel like human revolution is a term... Um, and a revolution that's necessarily it's never happened actually um, in the greater society mm. um, as a whole. So uh, if you can just you know go into what is human revolution, uh, Keisha? For me, human revolution is the one revolution that we have the most control over. Mm-hmm. We can determine where it's going. We can determine it when it starts. When it stops, like, that's the revolution. As much all these other ones out here, the revolution will not be televised and all of that. Like, this one right here, the one that is happening within our own lives, mm-hmm. where it's elevating our lives, expanding our lives, that is the one that we have the most control over. That's the vision that we create that we can manifest that we see where we are, that we can look at our lives and see the good, the bad, the ugly, and say, you know what? I want to transform this. I want this by, and you can put a date on it if you feel like it. You know what? By next year, (laughs) I want to be able to do this and start to actively work to that and figure out, even if you don't know what steps to take, you just know you're going to take a step. Mm -hmm. And hopefully on that next step, you'll get another greater, more uh, more precise direction on where to go or what to do. And I'm going to open up these opportunities in my life so that I can become this person on this date or I can do this goal or I can I can create this body or I can be able to do this stretch or like that that revolution is the one it's also the hardest because Uh the only responsibility is you and I think that's with that you know with the, the theme of this as radical responsibility that it's 
when it's just you, when you have to figure out what your block is. Like, why can't I move beyond this? Why can't I move forward? Mm-hmm. That that's when it really becomes that struggle, that internal struggle of, okay, am I ready to see why I can't move forward? Mm-hmm. And when am I afraid to move forward? That's another one. The number of people that are honestly afraid of success mm-hmm. and what that brings. And all of a sudden, society says that if you have plenty, there must be something wrong or there must mm-hmm. be something corrupt about it, like how you fit into this. That human revolution is the one that we get to shape and mold and color and put on display. And yeah. it's it's the one that I feel like, well, there's never an end date. Yes. There's never a, oh, I made it. Oh, goodness, girl. It was hard. Let me tell you about <laughs> it. It's never that. That there's always, we can always go deeper in mm-hmm. this human experience. We can always expand more as we connect with other lives. There's always something else to do, something more to learn, something mm-hmm. else to see. So that, like for me, that's what human revolution is. Keisha just took us to that place. Um, <laughs> as we were talking about yesterday, people have suffered under every social system that has changed. Mm-hmm. We have, you, from democracy to communism, Nazism, fascism, pick one. The rights of women have gotten no better, mm-hmm. only marginally better. People of color. There are very few countries on planet Earth. Keisha has traveled extensively. I have traveled extensively. I have traveled through Africa. I have traveled through Asia. I have traveled through Europe. There are very few countries on this earth where the rights of people of color in any country are respected. There are very few places on this earth under all of these different social systems and changes where the color of your skin doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So this human revolution that we're talking about of you making that change, as Keisha said, that is the revolution that matters. And the best part is you can go out and do something on the basis of that human revolution, of your of your own human revolution. I made a determination. I realized that in American, in our culture, and increasingly in the global society, that credit and debt is being used to suppress so many people, to block so many people from having a decent shot at living. So I made a determination to pull myself out of debt, Mm. to cancel my credit cards, to pay down debts, to start paying back student loans, to be the agent of my own financial freedom Uh so that nobody, when I go for a house, no one can tell me I can't have this house and not receive a fair fight from me because my credit says I can't. Uh That's a kind of human revolution that we're talking about. I decided that You know, I was a person, this is going a little personal, but I was a a person who I would say that maybe I didn't respect many of the people I was with. Let's put it that. But I decided that to really commit to my girlfriend, to really hone in and to stop the incessant, uh, you know, the never ending Search, always looking around, always <laughs> ogling over, you know, treating mm-hmm. uh, women, men, whatever, as the visual objects of your own desire to end that within myself. I've decided that my way of contributing to the overall ending of that is mm-hmm. to, within myself, decide to go day by day and step by step mm-hmm. and be different. 
This is what we're talking mm-hmm. about in human revolution. So when we say human revolution, we're not just talking about your own ability to overcome sadness or your own ability to not have a car and then pray for it and get a car or something like that. All those things are important, but we're talking about that fundamental shift wherein you see what's holding you back. And I promise you, whatever you see within yourself holding yourself back, you see in the society around you. Mm -hmm. You can call it mystical. You can call it a Buddhist principle. You can call it facts. That's what I prefer to call it. It's just a fact that things that I see going on in my own mind I also see playing around, playing out around me. So my decision and the decision of many Buddhists around the world is to very actively begin to change their lives. Mm-hmm. And we often say, oh, you know, you don't have to be different to become enlightened to be Buddhist. That's true in the sense that you get to keep the best of you. Mm-hmm. But you do become different. You become the kind of person who decides that I see something I don't like and I see it not only outside of me but in myself. And I'm going to change it. And I've decided I will be no one's financial slave. Mm-hmm. I will not. Cox Cable doesn't own me. Time Warner Cable doesn't own me. Bank of America doesn't own me. Mm-hmm. The lender down the street doesn't own me. I own myself. So I've taken responsibility within those systems, find an alternative to big banking. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that I'm doing. But within my own life, I won't be controlled by that either. So mm-hmm. that's human revolution. Ooh, wow. Courage, the courage <laughs> to do it. Thank you. Um, a definition, I guess, of human revolution, other than those amazing ones uh, that you gave, uh, or personal experiences, is was coined as what, like, the, an inner transformation mm-hmm. on the most fundamental level. You said, Keisha, but you define it. Mm-hmm. You define what is that going to be that inner transformation on the most fundamental level. It has nothing to do with the structure of society around you. Now, it doesn't mean that. You know, you're not going to meet adversity and that you're not going to have struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, you know, life is marked by that. And, you know, you have the structure that is trying to hold you back and, that you know, wants to stop you from reaching that higher point that you set for yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's like it doesn't matter what any of those structures or the man has to say about like how I would live my life. I am going to win over it all. I'm going to go through all of this adversity and make a social shift and change. Which brings me to my last question in the closing. Why do you two, as um, black individuals and dark um, individuals as you are, as beautiful as you are, decide to practice a philosophy that is not African? Um, An Eastern philosophy such as Buddhism, Nichiren Buddhism. Why have you not revolutionized yourself in a human way to connect back to Africa? Um, Why do you decide to, you know, practice Nichiren Buddhism? You're black. What up with that? Like, what up with that? Ain't no black Buddhist. That's what I would always hear whenever somebody would say, what's your religion? I'm Buddhist. But ain't no black Buddhist. Stop it. <laughs> but I am one. Um, Buddhism resonates with every aspect of my life. Okay. That there has been nothing as I, you know, as I was getting older and trying to understand all these complex theories in life. And I used to think a lot as a child. I had way too much time on my hands um, that I would read and think. And I would, and I had these questions that I thought like a kid should not have. I shouldn't be worried about like what happens after death. Like what, what eight year old sits back and like tries to figure that out. And I did. And I, I wanted to know, but I was always afraid to ask. And, but I, I didn't want to be afraid. And I had this thing about 
fears that I, if it's something that I feared, if the only reason why I'm not going to do something is because of fear, then I would just do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm obviously not going to kill myself. But <laughs> what is that? Like, why is this, why is the topic of death so crazy? Why is it so weird? Why is birth, what is that about? That life and the scientist in me came out. Yes, I did Saturday Science Academy. I am not ashamed. Um, <laughs> the scientist in me came out. Like, what is? what about that cell? Where did it come from? What is this? Well, how did that, what does that encompass? Well, what is it like as, like, how your life forms? And mm-hmm. when you when your life does start to go down like where does that energy go where does that soul go what is the mind separate from the body that I had all of these ideas and questions and concepts before the age of 10 and I didn't know what to do with them and you know my family was Buddhist so I sort of I came in to that but I was listening to it, even if I didn't realize. And I think as children, we are sponges. We just soak up everything. And if you love to learn and you're a perpetual student, like I say I am, I love to learn new things. And if I hear something that I don't understand, I will write it down and go look it up just so I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I like I like to have that increasingly or increase my knowledge bank mm-hmm. all the time. And I would hear these concepts about the the 10 worlds. I'm like, we got earth. Like, what are we doing here? Like what's going on? Or the 10 factors or the equality of life. And like you brought up the dignity of life and, and the oneness of ourself and our environment. And I would hear these, these concepts come around and I'm like, does that have anything to do with me? I don't think so. But as I got older, those concepts I was able to pull from to sort of understand these these other questions that I had that, oh, okay, when Buddhism talks about the the eternity of life, mm-hmm. that I I thought eternity meant until I didn't, until I wasn't here anymore, then that's eternal. But when it talks about the eternity of life and lifetime after lifetime, mm-hmm. I was like, stop it. That makes sense. Like yeah. right around 18, I was like, wait a minute. Yes, I do believe that I ha- that I am not fated into something, mm-hmm. that I do have control over my life and where I go with the causes that I make, that I can see how I ended up here. I can see my karmic patterns on how I ended up here, mm-hmm. and I know that I can change those patterns to end up here. Mm-hmm. I can see where that is. I, I became even like the, the concept of death started to weigh less on me because of the concept of the eternity of life and what I'm doing, how I'm preparing myself in this life for that next life and why I'm here. The, op- the specific obstacles that I have are the ones that I've chosen so that I can, so that I can not only change my own karma from lifetimes past, but I can also create value in this life by changing my karma for Mm -hmm. those people around me, for the society that I'm in, that everything I do is myself and others, that it felt so freeing that the more I studied, the deeper I got, the more hooked I became. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, there, I haven't come across any concept in Buddhism that disagreed with who I am. And that's important. And I remember, you know, the the nail in the coffin was, what? Women can reach Buddhahood too? Quit playing. 
People don't believe that. And I went to school in the South where, you know, there's still a lot of churches when I was there and even now that don't allow women on the pulpit. <laughs> like, it's not for you. And I'm like, wow, why is it? Like, what happens in society that we find so we we will find any way to separate ourselves mm -hmm. and that this philosophy this religion the these writings are uniting and they're all encompassing and that's what i love about buddhism and, and the more i learn the more i need to learn mm -hmm. <laughs> the more i study the more i want to study there's always more there's always a deeper level and it has followed me as I've grown up I've met people who have grown out of their religion that who they became as they were an adult wasn't the same person as when they were a kid so they don't believe in the same religion that their parents have because of how they grow Buddhism has grown with me mm -hmm. like Buddhism has allowed me to expand and and the more I learn the more I realize like wow it's it's still here it's still doing it the latter day of the law is long and <laughs> That's why, like, I feel completely confident as a Buddhist that it it represents me and who I am. Ralph, um, Buddhism for me taught me to know myself, um, and to not allow anyone or anything, social systems, my parents, my family, my friends included tell me who I am. Um, as, a, as an African-American man, which I am, from the South, you know, from New Orleans, Louisiana, which I am, there are so many, and I went to boarding school and private school and this and that, and there's so many people over the course of my life, and I've been practicing Buddhism for uh, 16 years now, so many people have, and things have tried to def tell me about me. Mm -hmm. And my mother raised me very well, huh. uh, and she raised me to know myself. Mamas. And Buddhism taught, and the reason I mentioned my mother in that regard um, is because I know there are many people whose parents didn't teach them about themselves. But when I left home, and I left home young, my mother essentially told me that you've been raised. You know who you are. So no one else need, you need no one else to tell you who you are. And I found that in Buddhism. I found that Buddhism taught me, takes me and continues to take me on this never-ending journey of knowing myself. That way, when somebody on the street tries to tell me about Ralph, I can tell them about Ralph and then some. Oh, <laughs> you see what you. I'm saying? Yes, thank I do. you. That's what do. Buddhism, <sighs> Buddhism has given me the conviction that not one person, place, or thing, not, one, not any adjective or anything, can show me myself. Only I can do that. And it is up to me to decide with any situation that I'm met with, you know, in my own belief, you know, I believe that situations are karmic from your, the, the, that situations are the result of the actions of body, speech, and mind that you've taken over lifetimes and lifetimes. But whether you believe that or not, you know, that's my belief. That is the Buddhist view. But whether a person believes that or not, you have a choice about the circumstances you find yourself in. Um, and one of the egregious things about 
a situation like, you know, something that's still touching so many of us in Ferguson or or in Florida, you know, in Seminole County, Florida, and all of these kinds of incidents is when someone else has taken away another person's agency. Mm-hmm. There is nothing more egregious than that. Man, woman, or child, mm-hmm. rich, black, rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. When you take away another being's agency, mm-hmm. you've entered a very dangerous territory. Um, and so I practice Buddhism to so that I never allow my agency to be taken away from me. Mm. Wow. And Buddhism doesn't tell you who you have to be. I will never forget someone came to a meeting, and I'm I'm always excited to see converts because I'm like, oh, what's it like for you? Like, does all this look weird if you're 20-something and you walk into a Buddhist meeting? Um, Because I never had – it's normal to me. Like, it's always been my life. But I remember, like, the guy hearing the whole spiel about Buddhism, and he's like, it's great, but what do I have to do? Like, do I have to cut my hair off? Do I have to stop eating something? Like, what do I have to do to become Buddhist? And everybody just looked confused, like, what? I, just as you are. <laughs> We're going to ask you to awaken the Buddha that's in your life. Like, that's it. And he's like, so I don't have to change what I wear. Like, I don't, you don't have to change, like you said. Like, you can keep the best parts of you. You will transform. You will become better through practice and self-reflection and that honest, that courageous mm-hmm. dialogue that you have with yourself while you're chanting nam myoho renge kyo you will transform. <laughs> but you don't have to change to become Buddhist. And there's no there's no script in the Lotus Sutra mm-hmm. somewhere that says, and a Buddhist looks like this. <laughs> and this is how they sound. And this is what they talk like. Mm-hmm. And please enjoy your Buddhist life. Like, there isn't <laughs> that. And that's what's great, that there's no... You know, the Bible said this or this or the Quran said this or this scripture said this or you have to look like this. There is no picture of a Buddhist mm-hmm. that it looks like all of us. And I would always say that when I lived overseas, like you're looking at me telling me I'm not an American. There is no face of an American. Mm-hmm. Like we all look like this as bad as you want to be able to say that's what an American looks like. Like you have no idea. Mm-hmm. That's not how we look. That's not how we talk. That's not how we walk. Like there is no no st- no mold of what a, an American is or what a Buddhist is or what. Like it's all of us. It's everything. Like we are that. And that's what I love about it. Wow, wow, yes. wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having this dialogue with me um, and more so uh, listen, like listening to you too. Uh, one goal I feel of, of this radio show is to allow voices that aren't heard to be heard. Mm. And, um, and I think that's why I choose to participate um, on resistance uh, radio is because um, it is an all, it's an all encompassing uh, show when it comes up to, um, raising the voices of those who's rarely heard. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, just for myself, why I identify as, you know, why I identify as a Buddhist, a Nichiren Buddhist inside of, uh, as a young black male in America, you know, as I'm told, right, um, is because of that all-encompassing idea. I think it's the same thing you both are tapping on. It's that all-encompassing is action-based. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not... I'm not confined by the ideas of the past, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So I can transform in the moment over the adversity to ensure that my happiness lasts. That's a line from my poem. But, mm. um, and <laughs> but it's the truth, you know. It's the truth. And I, I, I appreciate that. Um, 
And a little bit more specifically, or how the SGI organization was said it was just a gathering of the sick and the poor. Mm-hmm. And how it's always been practiced. This philosophy has always been practiced by the sick and the poor, you know. Um, and uh, I think I appreciate that so much because uh, who who needs uh, mm-hmm. something to be able to push them through over adversity yeah. that's trying to hold them down other than those who are economically stricken or socially restrained. Mm-hmm. That economic situation cannot define you. Mm-hmm. And that social structure will not confine you. You know, you have the ability to do whatever it is that you shall choose. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to have this dialogue with me. Thank I, you. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, once again, this is on Resistance. Thank you, Asia. <laughs> this is on Resistance Radio.